sales win rates have plummeted to a mere 17%, and outdated technology and tedious manual processes are to blame. Meanwhile, managers lack the visibility they need to hold their teams accountable. But imagine a world in which these crippling issues are solved automatically. Revenue.io automates the most frustrating parts of sales so reps can focus on what they do best, selling. Completely automate pre-call research, logging conversation data in your CRM, writing post-conversation recap emails, and prioritized outreach. And as reps book more meetings and close more deals, managers gain the real-time insight they need to scale what's working across their entire team. Ready to say goodbye to tedious sales processes and watch your win rate soar? Head over to Revenue.io to learn more. Like there wasn't online forums as much back in 2009 and stuff like that. So I was really lucky because there was like a sales guy hired ahead of me who's gone on to do really great things. There were other salespeople hired around me. And suddenly I was surrounded by incredibly talented salespeople. And so we taught each other. And like one thing that's really cool about being in New York is, you know, at the end of your day, what do you do? You go, I oh, have happy hour, right? You're young men, you know, 28 years old, pumped full of energy. And what are you doing? You're arguing with each other. No, I sell better than you. No, this is how I would have done it. Oh, this is how I would have handled that objection. And you actually learn through like fighting. <laughs> so it was just really interesting to like all be hyper competitive. And to me, that was the way that I learned. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. Now, that was Justin Welsh. He's the founder of his own sales advisory firm for SaaS firms. And Justin and I are going to dive into a number of topics today, including one he believes more sellers should be paying attention to, which is building your own brand as a seller. Now, what I really enjoyed about this episode is having the opportunity to talk with yet another emerging voice of a young leader in sales. And I love hearing how these new voices with new ideas and new perspectives on what needs to happen to drive the sales profession forward. So we're going to dive into a wide range of topics today, including what and who are the major influences on how sellers actually learn how to sell and what sales managers need to learn in order to better help their sellers improve their performance. All this and much, much more. But before we get to Justin, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could also give us your feedback about how we're doing in the form of a review. So thank you. And also, if you haven't connected with me on LinkedIn, please do. That's at linkedin.com slash in slash real Andy Paul. Remember, there's only one Andy Paul. All right, let's jump into it. Justin, welcome to the show. Andy, it's great to be here, man. Thank you uh, so much for having me on. Well, it's a pleasure to finally meet you. So you just moved. In the middle of the pandemic, you moved. I did. Um, you know, I've been I've been working on my own for the last uh, twelve months, and I was in LA for a while. And you know, it is not a super uh, great state income tax situation there. So uh, I decided to move to a zero percent state income tax here in Nashville, Tennessee. And my wife and I, rather than getting on a plane, uh, we drove across the country. Very interesting. So uh, tax refugees got it. Must be a lifestyle consideration, though, too. 
It is. We're trying to hack the system a little bit. You know, we're <laughs> we're we're uh, trying to spend less time working now that we're getting a slightly older, and we've put in a lot of years together at startups, and um, you know, decrease our expenses. So that is the uh, that is the plan. And kids? Nope, no kids uh, by design. Three okay. dogs. Three dogs. Well, they take a lot of work. I know. So, all right, all those things considered. So what what's the biggest lesson you've learned about yourself during the pandemic? Boy, I would say the biggest lesson that I've learned about myself during the pandemic is when I'm tethered to, you know, the computer and when you're sort of stuck indoors, um I'm I become much more of a workaholic than I would have uh, anticipated. Mm. And so rather than um spending less time working or more time with my my wife and my dogs, I've you know, I've gotten up earlier, I've stayed up later doing work and that's been I think something that I'm now much more focused on now that we've moved here to Nashville and part of the move was reducing some of that stress. So maybe maybe so that was a bit surprising to me and uh, un- it was unfortunate. So looking forward to correcting that behavior. Well, I think a lot of people have, have experienced that. I've, I've experienced it. Um, yeah, I think even my, my wife, same thing. It's like, it just seems like work has expanded somewhat exponentially. Um, yeah, it's <laughs> dangerous. This time. Yeah, it is. It's, da- it's, it's dangerous. I think a lot of companies are, are taking advantage of folks as well. Maybe not intentionally, but, um, you know, uh, people are, the companies know where folks are. They, they know that you're in front of their your computer. They know that you're at home and work days are no longer nine to five. If they ever were, they're, you know, they're seven to seven. And I think, you know, there's some danger in that. And I think that we all need to be a bit cognizant of how we spend our time with relation to work uh, during this pandemic. I think we got to be really cognizant of that. So what are you doing to change? Um, well, part of it is, you know, reducing the expenses. You know, we just moved into a house that's twice as big as the one we had in LA for half much less of a, yeah, for <laughs> yeah. half for half the cost. And right. um, so so that's helpful. So I can potentially, you know, work, work less hours and my wife can work less hours. So I think that that's sort of number one. And then number two, um, we're, we're just sort of changing our routine. We we live here near a really cool park in East Nashville called Shelby Park. And so each morning we get up and we uh, head down to the park and we do a four mile walk. And um, that's a great way to get the day mm-hmm. started and to kind of de-stress. Yeah. 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 I've, I've always been somewhat of a morning person from what comes to exercise. But yeah, in the early part of the, the shutdown, I sort of got away from that because I figured oh, I've got the time. I'll do it later in the day. And yeah, I found that over the last two months, going back to that habit, getting it done first thing really makes a difference. Totally. And, and we've always been exercisers. I mean, we we walked around uh, in, in LA, but you know, I, I never really turned my phone off, you know, and, and um, I always had it with me on our walks. And that was just bad behavior. And so um, for me, part of part of the change in behavior is just getting out to this park. It's beautiful. It's got deer and all this stuff and, you know, mm. no cell phone s- service. So I put my cell phone in the car and I just spend four miles, just me, my wife, just chatting, you know, getting getting our day started effectively. So that that's one way that we're really sort of de-stressing, if you will. Yeah, I like it. I like it. And so what have you discovered about Nashville that you really like? So coming from LA, both sort of, you know, have show business connections, the uh, music scene and so on. 
what uh, what have you gotten into? Anything, or has it been just because yeah. of the shutdown you haven't been able to? No, it's 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 such a great city. It, it's it's really it's sort of interesting, and, and without di- diving deep into sort of the you know politics of the city, but it, it's almost like two cities. Like you have downtown Nashville, and you have Twelve South, and some of the areas on the west, and then you have East Nashville, which is a little where we where we live, which I would say is more like you know the Brooklyn of Nashville. I know that's mm-hmm, thrown, mm-hmm. thrown, thrown around uh, way, way too uh, loosely, <laughs> but it's, it's more of the Brooklyn of Nashville. It's eclectic. It's hip. It's, it's really interesting. The people are super friendly, um, very accepting so far. Really, really cool that um, we've made some friends here already, which is awesome. We've only been here five days. Um, businesses are not quite shut down, but they're really, really, um, they're, they're taking the mask laws really well. And so I went out for my birthday dinner, I think on Saturday and went to a really nice restaurant called Husk, you know, sanitize gloves, masks, following great procedures. So the city in, in and of itself seems to be humming along really safely. And, um, and the people have been awesome. And um, the neighborhood is exactly what we were looking for. Just peaceful. So is this a milestone birthday for you? It's not. It's a well. I guess they're all milestones, but you know, I, I made it. Um, so that's that's a milestone. But uh, you know, it was thirty nine. So next year will oh. be the the big the big four zero. So that'll be a milestone for me. The big one. Okay. All right. Well, let's, tell us how you got started in sales. I and mean, what was your first sales job? I mean, was this was sales something you planned on going into when you graduated from school, or is that like many people just are a sheer accident? No, well, my dad, my dad has been a salesman for almost fifty years, so I think it'll actually be his fiftieth year next year. Um, wow. And so he graduated college and was a pharma rep and has always been a pharma rep. And you know, so when I gra- when I went to school, I went to Ohio State, and um, I graduated in 03. The Ohio State. Come on, come on. I, I do. I always get corrected. That's right. The Ohio State University. Go Bucks! And um, when I graduated in two thousand and three, I thought, well, you know, my parents have a nice house and two cars, like that. You know, be all end all. I'm going to get into doing what my dad did. That looks mm-hmm. great. And so I went into sales, and I actually was really terrible at it. Well, farmer sales, farmer sales, right? I, I did. I did pharma sales and I did med device sales. So I sold in the operating room as well. Um, so the first seven years of my career was in pharma and med device. And um, boy, I was not very good at it. And I got I got fired uh, in my first three jobs. And so uh, wait, by wait, the time wait, I was... Wait, wait, wait. So, okay. Well, let's, let's, you just can't say that and run by it. We got to explore that. So, <laughs> sure. so what'd you do? I mean, how'd you get fired? Why? Um, well, let's see. Uh, the first job I got fired for because um, rather than going out and working in my territory, um, I hung out with my friends and worked out. So I didn't. Uh, oh, I was I'll a field rep. Yeah, I was a field <laughs> rep. So I didn't. Um, I didn't really have a boss over my shoulder. You know, that's I was in the field, and so I was young and immature, and uh, you know, I wasn't focused on my career. I was focused on having fun, making friends, partying, and lifting weights. And you know, I was. I was your typical kind of poor decision-making 23-year-old. And mm-hmm. uh, so I got, I got fired in that. And, and then I think my, my job, my next job in med devices, I got fired um, because I, after being there for a year, I went out looking for another job. And my boss got wind of that and heard that I was interviewing at other places and cut me. So, uh, Were you doing well there, though? No. No, okay. no, no, no. I, I, I had no idea how to sell medical equipment. I, I didn't take it seriously. I, I didn't have a strong mentor. I, you know, I, I had no idea what I was doing. I, 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 I was aimless and lost and flailing in the wind. And anyone who even uh, suggests that I was average uh, is, is full of it. 
<laughs> so was there sort of this epiphany after the second? Well, you suddenly got fired at the third one too, right? Yeah, and the third one I think was a was a really short stint, and I uh, I got fired for I think the same thing as the first one, which was I just didn't really go to work. That that was my mo. Like that was my mo in almost all of my jobs up until I was twenty eight. Is I was extremely lazy. Um, I was really immature. I think that's what um, was the was sort of the killer for me. It was just just poor maturity on on my side and and I just didn't understand. I was like, hey, you know, I'm 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 young, I'm here to have fun, like the career will be here in the future. It's and I didn't have access to like much, right? I I mean, listen, I had a lot of I had a lot more access than some people, but I didn't have access to stuff like LinkedIn and some of these other platforms where people are learning a lot more at a younger age. I just mm-hmm. you know, I didn't have any any of that stuff. So well, so on the first two jobs, were you trained at all? Um, the first job I was trained pretty well. Um, the first, the pharma jobs I was trained pretty darn well in, I knew my studies, like, you know, I read the new England journal of medicine. Like if I got in front of a physician during a lunch, uh, I could, I could hold my own. And, Mm -hmm. um, and so I was well-trained the med device. I was not well-trained. I was what you would call a territory associate. And so essentially I was, um, you know, an, an underpaid sort of um, assistant to someone who owned a territory. And I happened to get placed under a guy that was like, they called him the gray wolf. He had been there for like 30 years and he did not care about, you know, my, my ability to, to thrive. I was just his errand boy. Like, you know, I, he's like, here, here's a piece of equipment, drive it four hours to Flint. <laughs> I was like, all right. And I was in Michigan. And, and uh, <laughs> so I didn't, I, I didn't learn anything. I just, I just ran stuff back and forth and you do that for 12 months, you're in a promotion. So, uh, uh, I got my own territory, and then I got fired. <laughs> and you got fired. <laughs> so, yep. so what was the device? So I sold um, laparoscopic and arthroscopic high-definition towers. So essentially, if you're going to have your knee or shoulder worked on, or you're going to have your ab- your abdomen, you're going to get like a lap colonoscopy, uh, lap, uh, lap coli and get your gallbladder removed. Um, I sold both the monitors that the physicians use, the HD monitors, to see what they were doing inside of those minimally invasive surgeries. I sold the scopes. Um, the, the, uh, God, I can't even remember the names. I sold all this, the equipment that got the scopes inside the body. I sold the pumps. I sold the, the water, uh, stuff that you use to fill up a shoulder. If you're going to do like a rotator cuff surgery, I sold all of that in the operating huh. room and, um, boy, I was not trained for that. So that's really scary when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. So, so, all right. It's not easy necessarily to get a third job after you've at the first two. So what turned it around for you? Yeah, it was interesting. So um, I got a call from a guy named Cyrus Masumi, who was the founder um, and and former CEO of a company called ZocDoc in New York. And um, here's the here's the deal. <laughs> I put my resume on Monster. Mm-hmm. It definitely had some. It definitely had some exaggerated accomplishments on it. And I I don't. I, I tell people now, I, you know, I wish I, that wasn't part of my story, but it unfortunately is. And um, I think all resumes are exaggerations. So, you know, I guess yeah. I, I don't feel that badly, but um, I've never interviewed a bottom performer. Um, but, uh, you know, I, <laughs> well, I no, put that no, on. No, <laughs> no, have sales assessment companies ever had anybody take their tests that hired. That's a bad performer too, right? That's that's right. Everyone's rookie of the year. Um, so I, I put my my resume on Monster and I got a call from a guy named Cyrus Masumi and he said, hey, we're, we're hiring for, our, I think, our second salesperson. And there was only nine people in the company. And I was living in Allentown, PA, you know, uh, yeah. and I took a bus, I took a bus to New York city and, um, I went to this interview and I had prepared because I wanted the job because I thought the software was so cool. Online doctor's appointments. I mean, no one had heard mm-hmm. of that in, two, in mm-hmm. 2009. And when I got there, I interviewed with five people 
I can remember the interview like it was yesterday. I'm in this old building in Chinatown. Um, they're eating pizza. They're drinking beer. It's like 7 p.m. I'm interviewing with five people. They're walking me through the medical systems of Denmark and why online appointments are going to work. And I'm like, wow, these people are brilliant. Like these people are super smart. And so I wanted this job and I was really well prepared. I had prepared well. I could walk through my bogus numbers and I I did that. And I landed this job uh, at ZocDoc. And that was the first place where like a light switch went off for me, like a light bulb went off for me. Like I I just ate that job up. I loved it. And my, my career since then has is, is been wildly different. And so maturity, you're sort of talking about, is, is yep. but taking it seriously. But what else do you think? I mean, the- Yeah, there was an intersection of four things. And this is, this is how I describe it to people. There was this product that I loved. I didn't care about arthroscopic and laparoscopic surgery. I didn't care about Coreg, the heart pill that I was selling back in the day, making a couple extra pennies for, you know, Mr. GlaxoSmithKline CEO. I didn't care about that, that at all. And, but I did care about this small team in this concept that we were going to book doctor's appointments online. That was incredible. So I had mm-hmm. this, this sort of intersection of this incredible product, this incredibly intelligent team, this team that like, I looked around, I was like, whoa, I'm surrounded by really brilliant people. My own maturity level, having just starting to increase a little bit, really reaching this age where I was starting to become a bit more mature. And the last thing was the energy of the city. I had been working in Allentown, PA, St. Clair Shores, Michigan, Steubenville, Ohio. And suddenly here I was in in New York City and like that energy just lit a fire underneath me. And so there's these intersection of these four things mm-hmm. and that, that almost made me a different person overnight. And I would say the last thing that really made a huge impact on me was I went out uh, on my first day with my boss, Ryan Stam, and I made a sale on my very first day. And I don't think I had ever really made a sale before. I had never gotten someone's credit card. I had never, you know, I had influenced physicians and things like mm-hmm. that, but I never made a sale. And I was like, oh my gosh, the city's booming. These people are awesome. This product is great. Like, I just made a sale. This is it. I found my my thing, and I was super thrilled to have found that. And so you're selling to doctors to get them to sign up to be part of the system. That's correct. It was a dual sided uh, dual sided marketplace. So there was you know uh, uh, you know uh, people on one side who were looking for doctors, and doctors on the other side who were looking to promote their practice. And so we were going out and we were connecting those folks on a platform. And essentially, um, we would go out and sell private practice physicians uh, a license for per per provider. And back in the day, I think it was you know two hundred and fifty bucks a month for doctors to be featured on the platform. Seems like an easy easy decision for their part. Um, so. Well, before we get too far down the line, so so you you go through this this track, and you said you're well trained, sort of in the pharma, but you know, subsequent to that, no training at Striker, you're going to a startup. There's no real sort of training. You've sort of referred to a mentor, but how'd you learn how to sell? Who who taught you how to sell? Um, great question. Um, so Ryan was my boss, and he was a really awesome salesperson, and um, he taught me. He didn't teach me how to sell, and, and I think he'd probably agree with this. He taught me to stop blaming everybody else for my problems, and that was like a really interesting mindset shift for me. He's mm-hmm. like, "Listen, man, this is New York City. This is a startup. Like, you're gonna either figure it out, or you're gonna get fired." And I was like, "Man, I don't want to get fired again, right?" And <laughs> so, right. Um, so that that was a good mindset shift. So I started. I didn't have like there wasn't online forums as much back in 2009 right. and stuff like that. So I was really lucky because there was like a sales guy hired ahead of me named Javier Rosas who's gone on to do really great things. There were other salespeople hired around me, Matt Gutu, one of my best friends to this day. 
And suddenly I was surrounded by incredibly talented salespeople. And so we taught each other. And like one thing that's really cool about being in New York is at, you know, at the end of your day, what do you do? You go out, you have happy hour, right? Mm-hmm. You, you know, you're young, you're young men, you know, 28 years old, what you have, you know, you're pumped full of energy and what are you doing? You're arguing with each other. No, I sell better than you. No, this is how I would have done it. Oh, this is how I would have handled that objection. And you actually learn through like, almost like fighting, like, sure. <laughs> like, you know, like, so it was just really interesting oh, yeah. to like, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll be, I'll be hyper competitive. And, um, to me, that was, that was, uh, the way that I learned. So if you were to think about it in the context, same question on context of sellers today, right? Cause you've worked in a number of startups is, is, and you support startups. This is a question I'm really sort of curious about because, you know, we, we spend all this money. I mean, it's a $20 billion a year, supposedly in the U S on sales training, and yet, when I ask people how they learn how to sell, and if I say, I give you five choices, assuming you learn from your own experience, that's just a given. But, you know, between coaches, your peers, as you talked about, customers, uh, your own self-development or company-paid training, you know, if you had to assign percentages to all of those, so they equal 100%, where do you think most sellers are these days? I think the majority of people learn selling in two places. They learn through their own self-development. I think that's what makes curious salespeople so excellent. And they learn from their peers. That That's what I truly believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and listen, I have great friends who run sales training programs and who run training consultancies. And, and that's awesome. And they definitely add value. But I think, um, boy, if it were me and I had to pick two... It's, I'm online, I'm looking at YouTube, I'm Googling, I'm reading blog posts on Sales Hacker, and then I'm going and I'm, I'm chopping it up with my peers during the sales day. I'm out at lunch discussing objection handling. I'm talking about the best way to, you know, set an upfront contract to close business. Like those are the two areas to me that are most meaningful and have the highest impact. I don't know. I've never really gone through a company training before and been like, I am a phenomenal seller having gone through this training. To me, it's, it's self-development and peer development. So what's that tell you in terms of how we should be enabling sellers how to sell? Wow, that's a that's a, another really great question. I think I think especially now, so let's let's do it in the context of where we are right now with COVID, right? Mm-hmm. I think we're going to start cutting real estate expenses across the board. And because you're going to cut real estate expenses, suddenly you're going to have um, you know, an extra Hundred, few hundred thousand dollars to a few million dollars, depending on the size of your business, to invest into your business. And what I truly believe should happen is that there should be a stipend, and that we should invest a particular amount of dollars in every single person in our organization to allow them to self-educate. I want my salespeople buying courses. I want them going to webinars. I want them listening to podcasts. I want them subscribing to Patreon accounts of the the top performers. I want them spending money on behalf of the company to further educate themselves. Because what I've found is when you educate yourself, you tend to remember more of those things. Mm -hmm. You tend to want to continue to consume that type of knowledge. So... I mean, that's where I think it's going to go. I think it's going to go to to very regular stipends if it's not already there in, in many companies. I hope it goes that direction. And uh, I think the, the last thing is you're going to start to see even stronger like buddy systems and training systems. I know when I built my last sales organization, one thing that I loved was we had, we didn't just have a manager. We had an onboarding manager, like a person who was distinctly responsible for your 
the beginning of your career at our business. And then they passed you on to another manager who was distinctly responsible for managing your career, you know, in your Mm full-time role. And you always had buddies. Like it's an ecosystem. Training to me is an ecosystem. It's not a classroom for two weeks. It is a continuous learning environment fostered by a really smart company. Yeah. I mean, well, first of all, the point you're making there is is sales is an apprenticeship. You know, and we seem to want to sort of try to defy that. And the fact is, you know, people learn at their own pace, but they also learn primarily through other people that they're working with, like your peers that you talked about. And we seem to have lost patience. You know, it's like, gosh, we have to onboard people in 90 days. And it's like, yeah, but, you know, this person's really a great person. It may take them twice as long. You know, are we putting them in the right context with the right people to learn from? Yeah, I, I agree. But the, but the flip side is the pressure. Right. I mean, most, most startup, most startups now are venture backed and, you know, there's pressure from the top to, you know, I just did a talk on this this morning to increase likelihoods and like, yeah, it might, it's interesting that bill takes eight months to ramp and Cindy only took three. And unfortunately, while, while bill might be great five months from now, my game is, my game is managing likelihoods. And, you know, the first three months of Bill's career in this example suggests that he's going to go the way of the poor performer. And so if it's going to be Bill or it's going to be me, it's going to be Bill. And, <laughs> you know, I, I unfortunately have to move on to a higher likelihood person. And, and that's the environment that we've, we've created. And so, um, you know, it's, it's sort of double-edged sword. Yeah. Well, I think the problem is that, yes, that's a startup environment. I've, you know, I worked for too many venture-funded startups to remember. But yeah, the world is not venture funded startups, right? Sure. And so totally. these these issues we have extend far beyond. I think some of the culture from the startups has sort of uh, invaded other more mainstream companies, and they sort of do it the same way when they really they don't need to. I mean, I, I love your idea about the stipend. I I believe that's absolutely a way we should be going instead of spending tons of money on sort of formalized training. I would take it a step further though, which is that I would have at least for salespeople as part of their compensation is that. We, and I don't know how we do this yet, but I've been thinking about this. Yeah, how do we establish sort of a baseline each year of what they know and what they're going to learn? And then part of the conversation is, did they improve? Did they invest in it? And did they improve as part of that? Yeah, I, I, yeah. I was talking to a group of startup CEOs, as a matter of fact. Not not all startups, but um, some more mature. They're private equity portfolio companies. And and you had this conversation with them about it. Well, yeah, you know, are you are you raising quotas next year? Who's raising quotas? How much are you raising? And it's like, okay, great. And I think the average is like twelve percent or something. And it's like, all right, well, who's who's investing in their people to make sure your people are twelve percent better next year? No one ever tries to correlate it that if we're going to keep raising the goals, we have to have sort of a you know equal investment in making helping our people improve. Hundred percent. I'm I'm huge in. I'm huge, and again, I, I want companies to unlock the potential for someone to invest in themselves. There are lots of people who want to invest in themselves, right? There are salespeople who say, I'm looking for mentors, I'm looking for guidance, mm-hmm. I'm looking for information. But a lot of times that stuff costs money, right? Yes. And so they're actually prohibited from improving. And to me, that's, that shouldn't be on them. Like if I hear about another person who's like, my company wouldn't pay for this, so I paid for it myself, that makes me so frustrated. Yeah, me like, too. 
you know, like if I have another person, I'm just going to scream. So, so for me, I think it, it is really unlocking the potential for someone to invest in themselves. Now, once you do that, the next question becomes, do they? Right? right, and if they and if they don't, then that's a different story. But you're going to have a, a. I truly believe that intrinsically, most people are are are, are pretty motivated at some point in their life, mm-hmm. and that um, you know we have to make an assumption, we have to assume positive intent when we when we give out a stipend, and uh, and assume that a large majority of our folks will invest in themselves. Uh, yeah, I agree. I, so I was I was just thinking, <laughs> I'd seen you had comment on there was this post. I think Scott Lee had done it recently, but. Uh, we're talking about you know, online and advice and so on. Is is should there be like some public way of rating or calling out what they thought was bad sales advice? Yeah, online? I saw that. What was your thought about that? Yeah, I mean, I said I said no. Like I said, only if only if there is no possible way that 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 it's it's if that advice is objectively bad in any arena. Then you might do that. I can think of a few times where people have given advice online that is objectively bad. It's terrible advice. No, no matter what business you're a part of. <laughs> can you and, give an example? Yeah, I don't want to publicly well, call the person out. Yeah, name yeah. I, 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 but they'll know who I'm who I'm talking about. But there was one person who recommended that uh, you know it's a good thing to sandbag your deals, and I just I don't agree with that. I, I think that in no way, shape, or form is that ever good advice. Um, and what was their motivation for saying that? Do you have to carry something from period to period? Yeah, so that you you should manipulate your comp plan because no one else is looking out for you. Hmm. I just th- I think when you sandbag deals, you have a chance of losing them. So Absolutely. for many other yes. for many other reasons, <laughs> do I do, for many other reasons do I think that's really terrible advice? Um, and I don't even remember if I called him out on that specific one. I think I did on, on something else. Um, but either way, like uh, if it's objectively bad, then I I say sure. But advice is so subjective. What what is good advice in one industry vertical sales cycle ASP? You know may not translate well to to another, and so oftentimes um, you know I I I I don't want to do that because I I feel like oh this might resonate with someone somewhere, and then another thing is like I don't know part of part of the way I feel about people is sort of natural selection like it's in mm-hmm. it's on it's on you to figure out who's got good advice and who's full of, you know, whatever crap. Right. And, um, and, uh, you know, if you can't do that, then you lose and that's unfortunate, but like, it's part of life and it's part of the responsibility of you as a person is to, to figure out who the right people are and the right advices. So, so I don't, I don't like that. I I don't like calling people out. I just think, I don't know, I'm, I'm all about positive energy. And when people are like negative online and get into arguments, I I don't like to participate in that. I just block those people. I'm, I'm positive energy guy. Yeah, I, I think there's, I, and I agree. I I don't jump into those <laughs> those debates either. Um, it, but there seems to be an increasing amount of it. It seems like people are afraid of something, and I'm not sure what they're afraid of. That that you know, I think sometimes sales managers get so controlling that yeah, what's the, they're worried that somebody might go learn something and actually try it and uh, not do it the way they want it done. I have a I have a different take on it. Here's sure. my take. Let's think of it. Let's think of a, a sports team people hate. People hate Duke Blue Devils basketball. People hate Ohio State football. You want to know why? No, I I only hate that when they say the Ohio State University, but other than sure. that, I'm good. Okay. But but people hate those teams because they're good. Mm-hmm. That's why they hate them. No one ever no one hates um 
uh, I'm trying to, no one hates like Wichita state basketball, right? Like, unless you're like their rival, right? Like, and so, uh, the, the reason that they hate them is because they're, they're good. And I think that naturally if you gain traction in anything, whether it's posting on LinkedIn or being a sales manager, that's winning a lot of awards, you get people angry. And generally you get people angry because they're projecting their own frustrations onto you. And, um, I think that's frustrating. I think that's where trolls come from. I think that's where a lot of these unhappy mm-hmm. people online saying really nasty things about people all the time comes from. And I don't know, I just refuse to participate in that sandbox. You know, I, I get out of that and I go play in another one. Yeah. And I, when I also thought that whole question sort of misses, misses the point, which is that, you know, the primary source of, of sales advice to sellers isn't coming from LinkedIn. It's coming from their sales manager. Yeah. I mean, if we have, as CSO Insights Research says, if we have fewer than 50% of reps making quota, then the primary source of questionable advice to our sellers is really coming from sales managers. Shouldn't we be, to our point about where we spend our, our training dollars, shouldn't we be doing more to enable our sales managers as opposed to as opposed to worrying about what people publish on LinkedIn? Uh, well, oh, not- yeah. I think, and just, sorry, I don't, don't mean to cut you off there, Andy, no, but I just wanted to, wanted to round that out. Like, I think there needs to be a whole reimagination of who is a sales manager. Like Michael Jordan, great ball player, terrible coach, right? Yes. Um, and it's because he's naturally gifted. And it's like, I know so many salesmen, uh, sales uh, people who become managers and when they go to explain how they sell or why they tick or how they tick or, or why the, the, it works the way it works, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't translate. Right. And I think we need to reimagine, is it top performers who always need to be sales managers? Because in my opinion, I've seen middle performers who have good fundamental skills and good people skills and good coaching skills turn into be incredible sales managers yes. and CEOs. And yes. so, um, and so I think it's a reimagination of the entire role. Well, so how would you reimagine it? Cause I, cause I, I agree. I mean, I think that, that well, there's a lot of things we need to radically rethink in sales. I think that's one of them. Uh, because I think that for whatever reason, whether because we're promoting the wrong people, or whatever is, is you know, my, Current hypothesis on this is that if you look at performing or excuse me, improving sales performance as a process, and every process has a rate determining step, is I think the rate determining step in helping improve the performance of individual reps is the rate at which sales managers improve themselves. Yeah, I think that's probably true. I I, I don't I haven't given enough thought um, to give you how I might reimagine it, but I think that we need to start thinking about what are and I know companies are thinking about this already, so don't don't let me uh, suggest that they aren't. But what are really the core fundamental skills that make a good manager? Not who is the best salesperson on my team, mm-hmm. and and in that I think the 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 latter is how companies think most commonly, but it, it, it's because of pressure, right? It's because oftentimes salespeople, they want to get out of the field. They want to get, they want to stop selling. They, they want to move into leadership roles because that's the traditional linear path to growth. And, um, so I think they don't have another direction to go. So what you get is you get bottoms up pressure from the salesperson saying, I want to move my career forward. You get top down pressure from your CEO who says, oh, Gary's the best salesperson on the team. Let's make him a manager, right? And here you are as a VP of sales or a CRO and you're stuck in between saying, I don't know. I don't think Gary's way of selling is going to translate very well. And, right. you know, how do you, how do you start, how do you start as, as that person, as that executive with, with an average tenure of 16 months? How do you, 
how do you buy the time to reimagine that role? You know, it, it has to be done across the entire industry. And so I don't have the answer, but that's that's a, a frustrating challenge that I think about frequently. Well, but I think you touch on something though too, is that so much of the or so many of the behaviors that we adopt as sales managers and so on, at least in the startup environment, are really driven by fear. And so yes. you know, the inability to change is really one of the critical points that's, I think, holding back sales. I'm having a conversation with somebody last week who's done a tremendous amount of research into uh, sales rep productivity and not looking at activity-based productivity, but actually productivity as a, from a dollar you know, per hour generated or you know, dollars per hour sales time generated. And, and the conversation was sort of based around this idea is that, yeah, individual sellers today are probably actually less productive than sellers were 30 years ago before the tech mm-hmm. revolution. Mm-hmm. It should not be that way at all, uh, but I think we've we've I said people are so afraid to change, and we think there's been all this change, but we've had tech. But I, I still contend, and I, sales is basically managed the way we managed sales a hundred years ago. Yeah, and tech in tech is if you have a great sales team and you put in really good tech, you have a better sales team. If you have a really crappy sales team and you put in good tech. You still have a really crappy sales team, and so oftentimes, like you know, s- different tech solutions are used as a band aid, and they are used as a reason to not coach as hard, or you know, not exactly. write not write great emails, or you know, not learn how to do cold prospecting. and And I think where tech really help, helps is when you when you're teaching the basics and the fundamentals, and you have you know, tech is tech is like a house. And selling skills are like the foundation. You can only really build on top of a sturdy foundation. I know it's an overused analogy, but you know it's a it's a sturdy no, foundation that's that, that, that's required. And and I just think that too often. And again, I think it's because of fear. I think it's like ah, oh, I just became a sales manager. I I got to prove myself. Or I just became a VP. I got twelve months, or I'm fired. Two quarters in a row, I miss. I'm done. And like I don't know. I, I just think is in until someone takes a step back and says. And by the way, I think this is starting to happen with some of the stuff that happened at WeWork and, and things like that. Uh, I think efficiency uh, is starting to become more important. I think growth at all costs is going out the window. And I think it's that growth at all costs mentality that's been around for the last however many years that's driven a lot of that fear and driven a lot of that that you know poor, poor behavior. Okay. One other area I want to get into before we let you go sure. is um, you talk a lot about salespeople building a personal brand. I do. And so why do you think that's important? Well, I think, you know, I think Dave Gerhardt put it really well today um, on LinkedIn. He said, you're, you're, think of your personal brand as your reputation. Like, it's your reputation online. And to me right now, like, we just went through a pandemic and what happened? Everyone got riffed, right? Everyone, mm-hmm. So many people got laid off. And when you get laid off, and that's just one scenario, what do you have to fall back on? You know, are you... Jim, the account executive who I can't really tell if you've been successful or you marry the account executive who I see online sharing good content. I see um, being really thoughtful and really caring and, and having really meaningful things to say. I see your awards. I see your numbers. You know, I get to know you as a human being. You build a network and suddenly you're networking your way to your next job pretty quickly. You're networking your way to your next promotion pretty quickly. And, and to me, it's like what was once the business card is now your online uh, persona is now your your personal brand, and people are like, "Well, who cares? LinkedIn's stupid, or Facebook, or whatever." And that's great, but I have connected, and I know other people who have connected in my network with so many influential people mm-hmm. on that platform 
that at this point in my career, and in, in, in maybe some other folks aren't there, but keep doing it, right? They'll do it. That you know so many folks that if you find yourself in a scenario where you need a job or you need a recommendation or you need to make a hire or you need to buy a piece of tech, like you can go to your network and instantly you have a hundred people that are like, let me help you. I've done this before and I've done it really successfully and I know all the pitfalls. And why wouldn't you want that? Like, and it shouldn't be based on your company. This is your profile. This is right. your online persona, not your company's. This is you. So invest in yourself in that way. And to me, you'll you'll never be jobless. You'll never be without a recommendation. Which I agree. And so the other point, though, is is what about from the brand actually helping somebody sell? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it it's, depends. The, the networking career stuff is great. Got another point. If we have time, we'll get into about that. But sure. But it seems like. Ultimate value has to be, yeah, is, is a prospect or a buyer is going to look at the things you share, the point of view you have, the things that you've done, your recommendations, and they may say, yeah, this is somebody we want to talk to. Yeah, depend, depends on if your prospects play on the platform, right? Like, um, you know, at Patient Pop, doctors aren't super active on, no. on the platform. So, you know, our, right. our buyers aren't there, but I'll tell you who is there are candidates, right? So mm-hmm. like I work there, Kevin Dorsey works there, like Derek Jankowski, Jesse Gitler, people who have Sam Lewis, people who have really good brands online. And when people, when we're going to make a hire, it's pretty darn easy, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, I want to work. For, I want to work for Kevin Dorsey. I want to work for Sam Lewis. You know, I want to work for Derek Jankowski. So there's benefits, not just in selling, but there's benefits in hiring. But then you take it on the flip side. You want to talk about benefits in selling. Look at the gong team. Like Sarah Brazier's all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. her buyers are online and I, I, you know, that it is what it is. Like that's just an example of a company investing in their people to buy software. And, um, you know, there's other companies out there doing that really effectively. There's the guys over at gravy, which is, I, you know, I think in North sure. Carolina, small company, Georgia, Georgia, but, yeah, in Georgia. Yeah. It's yeah. smaller, smaller company, all over. all over, but, but they're all over the place. Yep. And so, you know, I, I, whenever they need to make a sale, like it's likely that, you know, their CEO. Right. And and I think that that opens doors for making sales. So that's, that's, I think there's a huge benefit there. And I just advocate that people do it all the time. Oh, I agree. 100%. So, so what are the sort of the keys to building the brand? And just again, we have about five minutes here is, is yeah, no worries. what are things people should focus on? I think the, the first thing that people should focus on is treating their profile like a landing page. Right. So you got to be interesting and you have to, you have to garner interest in three to five seconds. Um, I think um, Donald Miller in his book, Building a mm-hmm. Story Brand, call, right. calls it the, cave, the caveman test, right? Can, can the caveman grunt in three seconds and kind of know what you do? And so for me, it's like designing your page in a way that guides people naturally down through it so that they get all the way through it and read a lot about you and get to know you a lot. And so I, I always say, start with the banner, move to the headshot, get your one line in there. Who are you? Who do you help? And what do you help them do? And then drive them down to that featured section. That section should be, you know, the demo or whatever you're selling, whatever you want, whatever you want people to click on, call to action, call to value. I think that's really important. And I think the the next thing is to really identify who is your ICP that you want to make content for and get really niche, right? Really figure out who that buyer is, or if you're, you know, want to build a network, who those people are that you want in your network and write content for those people. And the easiest way to write content is to document what you're doing every day. We're all learning something every day. We're all solving problems every day. We're all, you know, solving unique challenges every day. Write about that. Mm -hmm. Every day, every day you solve something, you just forget. Take a note, write about it. Take people on a journey. That is a huge um, kind of piece of advice that that I I read early on that, that helped me frame up mine. And then I think last but not least, be authentic. 
right? Don't try and be someone else. Don't try and be intentionally divisive. Like we have enough division in this country and world right. at this moment. Just be authentic, be kind, be compassionate, be empathetic. Like I know those are all cliche buzzwords, but but do it. Be yourself and, and add value to the community and don't do a lot of asking, do a lot of giving. Perfect. All right. Well, Justin, unfortunately we're running out of time, but if people want to learn about what you're doing now, how can they connect with you? Sure. Um, two sides of my business, but you can learn about them both at my website, which is theofficialjustin.com, theofficialjustin.com. And I've got a consulting side where you can learn about how I help SMB SaaS founders, or you can click on my personal branding section if you want to learn about uh, how I help folks build personal brands on LinkedIn. Perfect. Justin, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. Andy, you've been a real pleasure on my side as well. Thanks for having me on, man. Great to, oh. great to get a chance to, uh, to meet you. Yeah, we'll talk again soon. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. So grateful for your support of this podcast. And I want to thank my guest, Justin Welsh, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you could also leave us a rating or a review, let us know how we're doing. Certainly appreciate it. And you can do all that on your phone in less than a minute as soon as this podcast is over. So thanks for your help. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Hey, sales strategists. At Revenue.io, we're not just imagining the future of sales, we're building it. We offer the world's most complete platform for revenue teams, and we're featured in the most recent Forrester Waves for both sales engagement and conversation intelligence. With Revenue.io, you can slash call prep time to seconds, guide your reps in real time to have more successful conversations, and after calls, we generate ready-to-send recap emails so sellers can keep deals soaring toward the finish line at light speed. See the future of sales now at Revenue.io.